and uh, I just hope that uh, you'd walk away tonight and you think about just uh, the greatness of our God. Uh, truly, our God is glorious and mighty, and He's high above everything, and um, He'd be your affection, uh, He'd be your joy, and He'd be your strength. And so all these things, Lord, I think, I think we can walk away from. Um, so turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Keep pressing on. Pun kind of intended, but, but not really. I will always appreciate the pun. <laughs> um, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And we've arrived in the, the body of Paul's letter. Here he begins to address concerns the church has for him and he has for them. And I'm going to take off my mask. Um, but let's start by reading the text. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has been known, become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ for envy, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. This reads God's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword word. Uh, the title for this sermon, I guess, this Bible study for tonight is uh, Christ is Still Proclaimed. Christ is Still Proclaimed. Um, there's a common saying especially used in movies. Uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, this ancient proverb describes that forced cooperation between two opposing parties. Uh, we use the term frenemies uh, in modern vernacular. Uh, we as Christians, we have one job. Uh, we have one job, and we are to be about gospel progress. We are about the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. Everything in your life, your career, your marriage, your hobbies, uh, all must be geared towards, they must be oriented like a platoon of soldiers marching towards the battlefield. Everything in your life must be marching towards gospel progress or gospel advancement. Paul says, he cares about the formation of Christ. He says, I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, Galatians 4.19. And so if the mission, which is gospel progress, is also to see Christ formed in people, and that is accomplished through the proclamation of the gospel, uh, Christ we proclaim, uh, how do you respond to the gospel being preached at your expense? 
How do you respond to the gospel being preached at your expense? Do you respond like John the Baptist as more and more people were going to Christ to be baptized, to follow after him? Do you respond by saying he must increase and I must decrease? Is your joy full because the gospel is still preached or Christ is still proclaimed? Uh, This is Paul's attitude. Paul chained to the uh, Roman centurion, uh, enters into this body of his letter, and he begins assuaging the Philippian church's souls. They need not to worry for Paul because of his imprisonment. Rather, Paul has a big God theology. Paul has a big God. That even through imprisonment, God has not stopped working. Uh, The proclamation of the gospel still continues. The march of God's army of workers still presses on. And therefore, Paul's response is, I rejoice. While still in chains. A goal of mine, a goal of ours in this sermon series as we study the letter to the Philippians is to Impress upon you, impress upon all of us this big God theology. God is big, and God is bigger and stronger and more capable, more sovereign than you and I can ever begin to imagine. Bigger than the boogeyman. A little throwback there. Uh, Paul understood this. Uh, He modeled his ministry after this big God. Paul knew that he can do nothing outside of the realm of God's sovereignty, God's omnipotence, his omnipresence. And as God is everywhere and can do anything he pleased, Paul understood that the human circumstances are the result of God's meticulous and glorifying, God's self-glorifying planning. Therefore, while still in chains, Uh, Paul wrote to comfort uh, this body of believers. That regardless of where Paul is, uh, as long as Christ is still proclaimed, Paul is more than okay. He is rejoicing. So we can model our attitudes after Paul. We can see that in our lives and in the ordering of our lives, we can and should rejoice in the success of the gospel. We must devote ourselves to gospel progress regardless of the station of life God has presently placed us in. For tonight, let us examine and then adopt Paul's mindset for the gospel. Let us resolve ourselves to throw our lives wholeheartedly and joyfully to the success of not ourselves, but of the gospel, namely the Formation of Christ in, again, not ourselves only, but in others as well. So uh, the text, I think, divides evenly because there's two paragraphs and two thoughts here. Uh, And so we'll have two points for tonight as well. First being, uh, sovereign circumstances create boldness. Sovereign circumstances create boldness. We'll see that in verses 12 through 14. Second, uh, sovereign circumstances furthers, or further, grammar, proclamation. Sovereign circumstances further proclamation, verses 15 
through 18. And so let's begin starting at verse 12, where we left off last week. Sovereign circumstances create boldness. Uh, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Uh, Paul moved into the body of his letter as it is customary with all of Paul's letters. Real life issues and circumstances cause Paul to write. Here Paul introduces and addresses this first issue. And having the same intimacy as his introduction. Uh, remember last week how we studied how Paul deeply cared for this church. And because this church were uh, was not only co-laborers with Paul, but they went above and beyond what was required of them to serve, to serve him. They sent out a gift out of concern for the apostle, and the apostle probably slightly embarrassed to receive this gift. Um, he could sense the level of care and concern this church had for him. Uh, so in turn, Paul gave encouragement and confidence, knowing that they are walking in the Lord and that the Lord has been working in them. Therefore, he encouraged this, encourages them more or less by saying, excel still more. Continue to bear and produce the fruit of righteousness in verse 11 and persevere unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul addresses their chief concern, namely that Paul is in prison uh, because of the preaching of the gospel, he wants to assuage them of their fears. Um, I do not want to downplay the Philippians' concern here. It is, it is very commendable. And I think Paul recognizes that too. Because of the language he uses, he starts off by saying, I want you to know, brothers, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's as if Paul is saying, I know you are concerned and that you have every right to be. Because of my circumstances, they seem so dire. They seem so unfair, unjust even. I want you to catch the heart of this church for their first pastor. Uh, because it is from this heart that gives rise to the occasion of the letter in the first place. Uh, it's as if you got into a car accident. And you're unhurt by the grace of God. But your mother has every right to buy a plane ticket to come see you, regardless of whether you're hurt or not. And so a plane ticket wasn't an option for the Philippian church, so they did the next best thing. They resorted to send a representative with a monetary gift because they understood that in prison, Paul couldn't work. Paul was in chains. Paul still had needs. And so Paul, like every other human being, he still needed to eat. So Paul addresses their concern with the bigger picture. Um, that even though through this personal, difficult circumstance, uh, God's sovereignty is still in play. Uh, Paul understood the bigger picture going on here because he understood he was under the auspices of a sovereign God, under the sovereignty of God. Paul not only um, was in exactly where he needed to be, but furthermore, his circumstances gave rise to gospel opportunity, as we see, that wouldn't have been previously afforded to him. So regardless, as the hymn says, whatever may befall, God and God's gospel is still Paul's vision. It is still his aim. So therefore, Paul knows that the gospel can and will still make advancements. 
That you cannot shackle and chain God's gospel even though you've shackled and chained one of God's men. Rome cannot hold down gospel progress, but just as Jesus promised, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. There will be more and more people saved, more and more added to the church's number day by day, and there is no earthly opponent, nor spiritual opponent for that matter, um, that can stop God's gospel. Therefore, for Paul, he sees his imprisonment as gospel opportunities still. So that in verse 13, Paul is now able to preach Christ and his gospel to the imperial guard. That those Roman soldiers and officers and centurions that have been stationed with Paul has heard of and will hear about Paul's ministry. His slavehood, as we looked at, to Christ. Notice that there are two groups Paul has in view. Uh, The whole imperial guard. The Greek refers to this guard as a praetorian, which means upwards to 9,000 or so soldiers, all of whom serve and have probably been in contact with Paul or men that Paul have been in contact with. And knowing Paul and knowing his passion for the gospel and his heart for the gospel, you can imagine uh, that wildfire effect Paul has on these men. And that's the picture of the gospel moving. Um, There's an old youth group song. That at least my youth group likes to sing and goes something like this. It only takes a spark to get, thank you, Missy, to get a fire going, going. And that's the very imagery of the gospel, much like how uh, the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers on the day of Pentecost like a fire. Uh, This fire in turn would spread and spread and the gospel was unleashed upon this unbelieving and dying world. Uh, The apostles, like Paul, would be men on the front lines, the tip of the spear that would lead this charge and the rest of the church would follow and it has not stopped for 2,000 years. And it will not stop until the church's Lord, her Savior, her head, her husband returns. Therefore, for us... It's a simple application of preach the gospel wherever you are, whatever you do. Because you know it isn't your charisma, your ability, your intellect, your uh, beauty that drives it. It isn't your eloquence or your ability. It's because the message itself is infectious. It cuts straight to a dead heart and addresses its Need It's need for living water. It's need to be born again. The gospel moves people because that is how God moves. God moves by his message and his messengers. And so regardless of circumstances, like Paul, if you have a robust understanding that God is sovereign, he is big, he is more in control than you and I can possibly fathom, then you know your circumstances, regardless of what they are, can be mightily used by God. Wherever you are, be all there. Be present. Do not underestimate the ministry of presence. Be present. Be willing to get your hands dirty. Get into church. Get into a Bible study, a class, a workplace, and be all there for Christ. Like a lamp that is lit, do not place your presence under the proverbial basket but let your light be shown and known to all. Paul is embodying this very essence for us to imitate as he imitated Christ. 
I'm sure whenever you felt this when you arrived in a new place, a new city, a new town, a new campus, a new church, a new workplace, uh, you feel awkward, you have no friends, you're, you know, it feels like you're starting school all over again when you're a kid, you've made no connections. And so you can, on a basic level, sympathize with Paul when he's in prison, where not only he has no friends, but those around him aren't friends, they're enemies. They are vehemently opposed to the gospel. But for Paul, he didn't shirk away. He continued to be the same transformed man he was outside of prison. And because that, the entire Praetorian whole imperial guard, upwards to 9,000 men, knew about him. And one can surmise, at least um, in bits and pieces, why he's there, namely for the gospel. And I'm sure people were changed. Furthermore, look at the second group. Paul writes that not just the whole imperial guard or the praetorian has heard of him, but notice he says, all the rest, to all the rest. He does describe, he doesn't describe, sorry, any further how broad the scope of all the rest entails, but we can only imagine that even more people, probably neighbors, citizens, government workers, government officials, has heard of this man, crazy guy Paul. And notice this isn't, Um, for Paul and his reputation. So many men pursue and enter ministry, men and women, I'm sorry, pursue ministry because they want to be known. They want to be like Stephen Furtick, Andy Stanley, these mega church pastors who have blue check marks next to their Instagram handles. Uh, But for Paul, what does he say? To all the rest that my imprisonment is for my social media followers. He doesn't say that. He says, my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul says, I am here because Christ wants me here. Paul isn't in prison because it'll make him look good or attractive. He isn't preaching some kind of pissy, pithy, easy to believe message that sounds good to people so he can later have the video posted on Instagram, get likes and shares and follows. He isn't smoke screening his ministry under the guise of having a greater reach a greater platform to reach more people. Paul is in prison because his master wants him to be in prison. And so the sphere of his ministry will be in prison. He will preach to fellow inmates. He will preach to the guard he is chained to. He will preach to the supervisors that come in and check on him. And he will preach to whoever God brings his way. There's no scheming or strategizing of what his ministry will be when he gets out. There's no church growth plan. Because for Paul, Paul understood a text like James chapter 4, 13 through 16. Briefly read it to you. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your anger, uh, arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Um, Paul takes what's given to him and he chooses to thrive in it. Paul relishes in the sovereignty of God and rejoices in the fact that he can still preach Christ in prison. But he doesn't stop there with himself. 
He isn't so inward focused on himself, only focusing on his circumstances what, and what best thing he can do in his circumstances. And that is something I think you and I can learn from. Uh, when we are in difficult situations and we, we try to be godly, we try to be Christ-focused, we merely see it in the context of what God is doing in our own lives. But for Paul, notice how other-minded he, others-minded he is. Verse 14 says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment had the opposite effect of what the Romans, what Satan intended. What they meant for evil, Paul recognized they meant for good. Because of Paul was so confident to wear the chains for Christ, other brothers caught on with, with the same confidence as well. That is the paradoxical nature of the gospel. The gospel inverts and subverts the world's expectations for it. The world expected the church to fold after one of their main leaders was thrown into prison, but it produced the opposite effect. The world expects the church to be a blip on the radar, a fad, a movement that comes and goes as other movements, but as the Pharisee Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, rightfully and wisely pointed out, that if God is behind this, neither you nor anyone can stop them, can stop the church. Does this create confidence in you? Does God's sovereignty create boldness in you to go and share the good news of Christ with others? Well, someone can say, you can say, well, I'm, I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid of being made a fool of, uh, made fun of. For the church, that absolutely makes no sense. If the world operates under the sovereign, mighty hand of God, then our evangelism, our great commission is foolproof. If you speak with someone and God has chosen you and ordained that you would be the instrument at that moment for that person to be saved, you can have absolute surety that the person shall be saved. What boldness does that create? And if it wasn't their sovereign, preordained, elected time, that was God's will too. That's why difficult doctrines such as limited atonement, election, shouldn't be difficult at all. Not if you believe in a mighty, sovereign God whose grace is irresistible and love uncontainable and overflowing. All who will be saved, as God has chosen, will be saved. So for Paul, for the church, this creates boldness. This creates confidence because what can man do to me? What can the world do to the church? Reformer Martin Luther wrote in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So we look to this great cloud of witnesses as the author of Hebrew writes. He writes, I'll read it, Hebrews 11. And beginning of uh, chapter 12. I can get there. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay 
aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All these um, all these men and women who went before us, um, they proclaim Christ with confidence. And so we can continue to persevere with that same confidence. Let us imitate Paul as he imitated Christ, to preach Christ wherever we go, wherever we are. On your campus, there are many who, you claim, who, who claims to know Jesus, but in truth do not. Preach Christ to them. Preach Christ in your homes. Preach Christ in your workplaces. Uh, preach Christ because when we are preaching Christ, there is no safer place we can be because we are in and under the will and the auspices of a sovereign God Almighty. Second, Paul explains that sovereign circumstances further proclamation. Look at verse 15. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Uh, Paul shifts to address a caveat, per se, in uh, verse 14. He uses the indefinite pronoun, some, meaning a certain but unknown group, most, uh, most likely inferring and drawing from that previous group he mentioned in verse 14, uh, these brothers who arose to preach because of Paul's imprisonment, Paul recognizes that not all of the motives behind that preaching is pure. So he includes them. He recognizes them only because at the end of the day, they are still preaching Christ. The message is still the same, although the motive is warped. Uh, Paul uses terms like envy, rivalry, or uh, out of a grudge, out of spite, out of malice towards another person, or um, done in the spirit of one-upmanship rather than out of cooperative service. Notice Paul does not commend these brothers, but rather he just simply states that that is their motive, that this is happening. He does not want us or the Philippians, the readers, to misunderstand his point, that motives still matter, but motives should only be our concern when it comes to ourselves. This is an issue that I think a lot of young people in the church wrestle with. You see others getting attention and you may even know their motive. Men enter into the ministry for a variety of reasons. But for Paul, if the message is the same, he accepts the reality behind their motives. For Paul, he knows when it comes to the area of motives, uh, the, this ocean of motives is as wide as it is deep. And therefore, uh, there is good and bad motives in gospel ministry. That's just the reality of the world we live in. And if we were to parse through motives, we would stay up all night, rack our brains, and no gospel progress would be made. So Paul recognizes that there are pure and there are impure motives. But if the message is true, uh, the message is pure, then he has at least some reason to rejoice. Uh, Paul also knows that he has like-minded brothers in the field with him. He recognizes their motive of love or goodwill. Uh, they love the Lord Jesus Christ and wish to do everything they can to serve him. Uh, furthermore, these like-minded brothers are 
probably informed of Paul's prison ministry as well. Uh, They, like the Philippian church, now understand that Paul is in prison for the defense of the gospel, he says. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul picks up on that theme that Jesus used when describing the gates of hell not prevailing upon the church or her gospel. This is that defensive position. When the ministers of the gospel are under attack, the gospel is under attack, um, the message is validated. Ministers, therefore, arise to defend not only the truth of the gospel, but also its sufficiency. Paul knew that all of his needs were met in Christ and that Christ was truly enough for him. So Paul will join and defend. He will defend the gospel in chains while others are outside for a variety of reasons. He moves to describe the former. The brothers who speak in spite or in envy or in rivalry of Paul and proclaim Christ for their own benefit. Maybe they're in ministry for the money. Maybe they're doing it for prestige or fame or recognition, selfish ambition. They're doing it to further themselves. But Paul claims that whether or not these brothers outside grew in confidence because of Paul's imprisonment, whether they're doing it for Christ and love or themselves and selfishness, Paul rejoices in the proclamation of Christ. These rivals reveal their heart and their affection, where these things lie as they are seeking to afflict Paul, meaning they are seeking to do him harm as they assume that because they're preaching the gospel now, this would do some kind of harm. They feel as if the roles were reversed. They would envy and rage and covet over Paul's ministry when he was outside, when he was not in prison, and therefore they probably thought that their ministry has become superior. That Paul would be ashamed because he is in prison and they are not. But look at Paul's attitude. Look at his disposition. He cares less about their ministry success. He gives no hoots about it. For Paul, he asks, what then? The interrogative, what next? Or to use a modern day equivalent, the, the shrug emoji. So what? Who cares? Who cares if your ministry is flourishing and and the means seem to be barred because I'm in chains. Paul is by extension rhetorically asking, why does that matter when at the end of the day, Christ gets all the glory with or without your right heart motive? So Paul says only in every way, every way, any way, any way Christ is proclaimed, whether in pretense, meaning whether under the guise of genuine gospel ministry or in truth, if Christ is truly proclaimed, if he is, the cross is truly preached, if the resurrection is truly our hope in life and death, every message, Paul says, he rejoices. And here that theme of joy returns. It is the abiding, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered joy that drives Paul. It moves him. It motivates him to minister in chains so that over 9,000 men hear of Christ. And it is the same joy that stays with Paul even when he hears of the ministries of other brothers, regardless of motive. Paul affirms with, yes, and I will rejoice. He is 
by extension saying that I will distinctively choose to rejoice in all of my circumstances. This will be the theme that will come up again and again, ultimately culminating in chapter four, where he informs us that he knows how to abound in joy and in um, sorrow in every circumstance because it is Christ who strengthens him. It is Christ who gives him this joy. And this is the poignant point of application for us. Do you orient your life for the proclamation and the progress for the gospel? Do you recognize that when you are walking and abiding in the will of God, that your life proclaims what your heart believes so that there is infinite reason to rejoice because you worship a sovereign and infinite God? Are you able to look past your present circumstances, your past traumas and your future worries and behold Christ, behold his cross, behold his glorious resurrection and be completely assured that you are exactly the person and you are exactly in the place God wants you to be. Simply put, do you rejoice? Paul's entire first point in his letter to the Philippians is to assure them that God is still Sovereign. God is still in control. There is nothing he, nor his brothers, nor his rivals, nor his opponents can do to thwart the purposes and plan of God. Therefore, the response must to either come under that sovereign will of God, continue to proclaim Christ in every situation, in every circumstance you're in, or to reside outside of it. You can joyfully obey Christ. You follow after him. Pick up your cross daily and proclaim him until your dying breath. Or you can resent. You can continue to trust in yourself. You can continue to run away from God, continue in your rebellion, and continue in your sin. Um, I would be hard-pressed to believe that I think some of us tonight, some of you find yourself in this very situation. and You refuse to submit to the will of God. You believe that you are still the master of your own fate. Whether you proclaim you know Christ in pretense or in truth, you must submit to him. You must come under the sovereign hand of the Lord, not because God is a ruthless taskmaster, a mean slave driver, or a heavy-handed warlord, but rather he is a loving father, gracious and kind God. He is patient with us. He woos us and draws us and calls us to come and abide with him. Christ then is our brother. He's our high priest who not only sympathizes with your weaknesses, uh, but also advocates for the faithful. The Holy Spirit is that faithful paraclete, faithful helper who come alongside, who prays on your behalf when your groanings are too deep for words. He fills and he strengthens and he enables and emboldens. This is the God you would come under when you submit your entire life to him. In short, there is no safer or better place to be than under the wings of a mighty God. So for Paul, he tells the Philippians, his dear brothers and sisters, friends, that he is more than okay. The same can be said for that man or that woman of faith. When under 
the sovereignty of God, we are more than okay. Paul will continue to describe his present circumstances and show us a better attitude when those storms and those troubles of life press upon us. But regardless, if Christ is still proclaimed, he, Paul, and us modern-day believers can still rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its helpful truth that reminds us that you are so much bigger, so much better, greater, mightier, stronger than we can ever begin to imagine. And so, Lord, as we study your word, as we study your character, as we study you, uh, enlarge our vision. Help us to behold more of who you are and so that our praise can match your worthiness, your largeness, your bigness, God. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for all that he does. In his name we pray. Amen.